0: Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is joining us remotely from uh, Portland, Oregon. Well, actually, you're in Eugene, but the brewery is in Portland, Oregon. Um, Sam Pecorero from Von Ebert Brewing, head brewer for Von Ebert. Welcome to the podcast, Sam. Hey, thanks, Jamie. How are you doing? Um, For those of you who uh, follow Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, and I hope everybody listening to this podcast does, uh, Von Ebert uh, does Alma. Heritage Beer it was one of our beers of the year last year for craft beer and brewing. Um, Sam also won a GABF bronze medal for their American IPA. That's not a hotly contested category or anything. Um, for nothing noble in 2020, uh, I can't wait to talk about everything from saisons to lagers because you you know Von Ebert has also launched a pretty uh, pretty uh, solid lager program. And uh, of course, I you know I think we've been working on our lager issue right now. And uh, I want to say that the Bohemian Dark Lager Um, may have scored really well in this upcoming issue, but you'll have to wait. You'll have to wait for that issue to find that one out. We're going to talk about all of those things on this uh, episode of the podcast. First, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, GD chillers set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. New this year, redundancy meets efficiency. GD's microchannel condensers are built with all aluminum construction, which eliminates galvanic corrosion. Using half the refrigerant of conventional condensers with fewer brazed connections translates to a lower GWP. Key and less opportunity for leaks. Call GD Chillers today to discuss your project or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by Crisp Scottish Pale Ale Malt. Crisp Scottish Pale Ale Malt is a workhorse of many a brewery and is at home in a variety of beer styles. Crisp sources the lowest nitrogen spring barley from farmers in Fife up to Moray during malting high cast moistures and a balance of optimal germination time and temperature resulted in even well modified malt with a rich color and balanced sweet malt flavor which is ideally suited to ale brewing visit bsgcraftbrewing.com for more information on crisp scottish pale ale malt or call 1-800-374-2739 so sam as we normally start off this podcast, uh, you know, give us a little bit of background on you, how you got to where you are, your your brewing career and history. Um, you know, how you got into craft beer in general, and then uh, uh, give us a little bit of the Von Ebert story while you're at it. Yeah, thanks. Absolutely.
1: Um, so, my entire brewing career has been in Portland, Oregon. Um, started about ten years ago. Uh, moved here about a year before that, and got a, um, a job at a, a great craft beer bar, uh, the Beer Mongers. Uh, which has become an institution in Portland. And through that uh, job, I ended up meeting the um, owners of Burnside Brewing and started volunteering uh, with them and got up on the brew deck pretty quick. And uh, was there about three years, uh, went and worked with some friends at the Commons Brewery. And after the Commons closed down, Got a job with uh, the great people at Brakeside Brewing and then joined Von Ebert about three years ago. Um, Originally as the head brewer of the uh, Pearl Pearl District location and then um, uh, the head brewer of the other location ended up uh, moving on and opening up a brewery in um, uh, the valley in Oregon, uh, the Willamette Valley, and then took the position as head brewer of both locations um von Ebert, i joined von ebert about a week after uh, they opened up and uh, from the beginning we've really wanted to focus on, on german inspired lagers uh, mixed culture beer and ipa variants and got it okay.
0: and uh you know right it's, and so von ebert um the the cook family that owned they you know von ebert kind of came out of their previous licensed, you know, uh, arrangement with fat heads. And then when that agreement didn't happen, or I, sorry, I guess it, it, when that agreement kind of met its ultimate end, they decided to create this new brand for their brewery Von Ebert. And that's when you join the brewery.
1: Yes. Correct.
0: Yep. I'm just I'm I'm mapping it back because we've also talked to to Mike Hunsacker you know of Grains of Wrath, and he was talking, you know, his uh, story goes back to the Portland Fathead days, and so you know there's a lot of interconnection and overlap here, and uh, you know and and piecing all the 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 puzzle together.
1: Yeah, there's interlap and overconnection, you know, uh, all around the country, but especially in
0: uh, in the Portland Portland beer scene. For sure. For sure. So, uh, you know, what initially drew you to craft beer and what, uh, you know, set you on this path to, to kind of become a brewer.
1: You know, when I turned 21, uh, I was living in Western North Carolina at the time, going to, going to school at Appalachian state. And there was a, a really small, uh, little kind of mini mart that had a, uh, make your own six pack program. And, uh, yeah, I earned a lot of a lot of free T-shirts with punch cards and made my way quickly through through I think every single one of their beers and um, yeah, just fell in love with beer through that and then uh, moved to Ohio for a while and started home brewing. Uh, yeah, and I think that's a, a fairly common story that a lot of brewers have, but yeah, that's how it happened.
0: Sure, sure. Um, so you joined up with Von Ebert, you know, as they're making this, uh, you know, shift and launching the Von Ebert brand. Talk to me, uh, you know, about working with, uh, you know, the, the ownership family and trying to develop, um, you know, a program for beer. Obviously when it was fat heads, there was the recipes and the, the beers and those brands were there. Um, you know, you strike out to do Von Ebert as a different kind of thing, uh, you know, with a different kind of brand, you know, clearly there has to be, you know, some kind of hoppy IPA continuity, just because there's an expectation amongst customers there who might've been frequenting the, you know, the same brew uh, pub for years and years and years that, you know, that they have those beers, but at the same time, you want to kind of strike out and create a Von Ebert identity, which, you know, is significant and substantial on its own. Talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, those early conversations and how you all as a, as a group developed a a beer identity for Von Ebert.
1: Yeah, I'll be, I'll be completely honest with you, Jamie. It was not easy at first. Um, you know, I, I took the job a couple months before I started and, uh, you know, to have to come out with, with a ton of beers all at once, rather than, uh, you know, being able to dial them in slowly over the years, uh, it was difficult. Um, you know, we tried to tried to offer a broad range of, of not only IPAs, but other kind of, like, classic American pub ales at first. Um, the, the Glendevere uh, brewing location wasn't open yet at the time, so we we're producing all of our beer out of the Pearl District. Um, it, was, it was a lot to do at one time. Uh, but I think, you know, six months to a year into it, we were able to, you know, diversify the tap list, got get a lot of uh, our German-inspired beers on tap. Um, kind of make a name for a few of our IPAs. Uh, I think um, you know a, a lot of people were really looking for uh, hazy IPAs at the time, but we thought our best beers were a bunch of uh, you know clear West Coast IPAs that that took about a year to catch on. Um, but once they did, I think we started to dial things in. And, You know, I think the it was a combination of us uh, pushing customers in a certain direction, but also the customer being willing to you know, try a bunch of different beers on tap.
0: You know, for you all building, you know, Von Ebert, you know, how did you, you know, kind of view the lager as, as a piece of this puzzle?
1: Yeah, I think a couple different ways. Um, I mean, one, uh, we, we really want our, um, our Pilsner to be a, a flagship, you know, side by side with uh, volatile substance, our, our West Coast IPA. Um, but then we also want to have a, a very strong and diverse seasonal program. Um, you know, we're doing a lot of modern pilsners, uh, different takes on, you know, uh, Italian pills and French pills, which is kind of our tongue in cheek, uh, you know, uh, change of raw materials on, a, uh, on an Italian pills. But, uh, yeah, I, th- I think we really want to balance out our IPAs with the flagship pills, but then we want to gather excitement through our constantly rotating
0: seasons. It is kind of a fun thing. And of course, we've all talked to Kevin Davey, a Wayfinder, you know, big lager proponent there in Portland. And there really is this, you know, I love watching these kinds of pockets of, of lager brewing um, and competitive lager brewing, you know, folks that are pushing each other to make better lagers, you know, pop up. We had a, a long stint over the last, you know, couple months of, of Texas brewers that are all doing the same kind of thing, you know, with, with lager in, uh, in Austin, Texas, and the surrounds, um, you know, and it seems like these little cultural beachheads, you know for for logger develop but you know brewers enjoy drinking them they start making good iterations of them and those good iterations tend to attract drinkers because they're they become good beers, um, you know. And then there's that sharing piece and whatnot. But let's let's talk a little bit about that. Um, I mean, obviously, we've talked we talk a lot about loggers here because this is a podcast for brewers and brewers love lagers. But first, the world of craft beer is a different place now. Margins are more important than ever. So why not lower your ingredient cost? Craft juice concentrates from Old Orchard are the cost-effective solution for your fruit-forward needs. Old Orchard produces high volumes of their retail juice brand, so economies of scale, keep prices low for their bulk supply program. A little concentrate goes a long way, and you won't lose some of it through filtering like you would with purees. Just start increasing your margins now, head over to www.oldorchard.com brewer. Also, for years, BreweryDB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery and beer information. In 2019, over 1 million brewery visits were made by craft beer fans searching for breweries on brewerydb.com. In just a few weeks, BreweryDB will unveil an all-new experience to help craft lovers get back on the brewery trail. To take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of BreweryDB and increase your taproom traffic, set up your account on Mark marketmybrewery.com that's marketmybrewery.com it's easy and it's free in a market with so many great lager makers how did you all set out to create lager that tastes in a way that people expect it but also isn't just a carbon copy of what other people are making
1: yeah i think there's a there's a uh, a few different ways to do that um Number one is just uh, selection of raw materials, selection of yeast strain. I think can differentiate you quite a bit. Um, I think you know m- most breweries uh, default to you know uh, Pilsner and Pilsner, uh, uh, products for their for their malt. But um, going beyond that, I mean, process. I mean, there's you know uh, a million different ways to make these beers, and I think they all do create uh, subtleties that you know make it a um, give a house flavor and a house product.
0: Let's talk about Von Ebert Pilsner then, you know, when you were, when y'all were coming up with that beer, um, what were some of those key decisions you made that you feel define, you know, what that beer is and the way that it expresses itself?
1: Yeah, that's a great tie into what I, what I just said about, um, process and raw materials. Uh, we wanted to be unique, but not reinvent the wheel. So we did combine a, um, a couple of different, uh, Pilsner malts. Um, we really wanted to push them more more floral, um, noble hop aroma, uh, rather than a lot of the, um, like spice and herbal character that you find in, um, most other products.
0: Let's, how do you, do, you know, what are some of those ingredients, uh, you know, selections that you made in order to achieve that, you know, in terms of blending Pilsner malts, you know, for, for production brewery that can be an expensive thing. And uh, you know, if you're not using a singular base malt and you're you know, pulling sacks and, and whatnot, then that can be a real pain in the ass from a production standpoint, um, as well as you know, ordering smaller quantities and getting those in. Um, what malts do you tend to blend and what do you find is the benefit of blending different Pilsner malts into a base like that?
1: Yeah, so uh, to back up a second, at the, the Pearl District location where we do the, uh, where we make uh, pills exclusively, uh, we don't have a silo. Everything is by bag, so you know it's it's a little bit extra work, but it's also nice to be able to uh, not have to rely on on a particular um, base malt. Uh, we started Pilsner off with a blend of uh, Weirman pills, Weirman Barca pills, and Best Heidelberg. Uh, we got away from the Best Heidelberg, not that we don't like the malt, but we thought it just brought a little bit more uh, a little bit more sweetness to the beer than we were looking for.
0: And so now it's two malts. It's Barca. Pilsner and what? Yeah, pills? correct. Yeah.
1: Yep. Yeah. So 70, uh, yes. I'm going to say 75% of pills, 25% Barca. Um, yeah, you also, you asked about the advantage of that. Uh, they definitely, they taste different. There's a, a unique character, uh, coming from blending. And then also you have the advantage of, um, you know, lots and seasonality and year to year. It's a lot easier to, um, you know, adjust, uh, based on those changes when you have a, blend of
0: malt rather than relying on one single sure sure um when it comes to hops you mentioned wanting to achieve a kind of floral element more so than herbal or spicy um, how did that play out with your uh, hops sourcing for this
1: yeah we i think we overcomplicated it a little bit to begin with um we yeah. had a blend of <laughs> like <laughs> Like we're uh, we're definitely guilty of that quite a bit, and I think most brewers are. Um, yeah, we had a let's see, bittered with Magnum, uh, had a little bit of Tat, some Saphir, and middle through. and just over the years it really just got dialed back. It's just all middle fruit. Um, I think the the biggest tweaks we've been making are just changing timing on those. Um, You know, sprinkling them uh, throughout the end of the boil from 20 minutes all the way through uh, partially into the whirlpool um, has made a big difference. And we're getting as much complexity out of timing as we are, uh, you know, using different varietals.
0: That's an interesting uh, one, and I and I love it because I've heard this and I have been hearing this from um, you know for Again, we're working on our logger issue right now, so we've been having a lot of conversations around these. But I love and even last week, Jeff Wiedeker on the podcast was talking about as he was di they were dialing in their check pills that it was this process of simplifying and that the simple the simpler solution tended to be the better one that they you know went into it with. Uh, Craft you know, homebrewers' mentality of let's make big flavor. And then found that it got better and better, you know, you know, um, the more that they simplified it. You know, for you all, um, let's talk a little bit about that timing. If you've been playing with that timing, and and, and in in this case, I think the hop variety and that timing are kind of in um uh, inextricable things. You know, you almost have to discuss them together because different hops behave different ways at different times and, and they're not all just fungible. You can't just say, you know, all hops are going to work better at, you know, 90 minutes or 60 minutes or or 15 minutes in, um, when it comes to the middle fruit that you use, you find that, um, that that kind of timing towards the end of the boil gives you the aromatic thing that you're going to talk to me about some of the tweaking and experimenting that you've done with that timing and how you felt that impacted the beer.
1: Yeah. I, I'll even go a step further. I think, um, you know, it's, it's not just varietal, but even within the the same varietal, um, you know, different, different crop years, uh, different alpha, different oils. I mean, they all need to be tweaked, uh, you know, and timing is a, a great way to do that. Yeah. I think we've really overloaded too much at the end of the boil. Um, so we started, uh, breaking up the additions, uh, dragging them further into the whirlpool, um, uh, and then earlier into the boil, um, now we go uh let's see we split it up into three equal increments uh total it's around 1.2 pounds per barrel um, a third of that gets added at 25 minutes left uh, a third at five minutes and a third five minutes into whirlpool um we, we just found the hot character is much more complex we're getting a, a broader range of um you know uh, oil aromatics um you know, rather than just kind of one note.
0: And so, before that, where what was the timing? Bef- you know, before you kind of moved into this kind of strategy.
1: Yeah, it, incrementally moving to that. Um, I think we started out at maybe one one large addition at, at ten minutes, and then one at the beginning of whirlpool.
0: a Oh, okay. So you were really backloading it um, when you started, rather than you know the kind of more consistent through a boil. Um, or earlier in the boil and let it let it all boil out kind of uh, approach. Yeah, I think that
1: that's probably a uh, an artifact of also being a um, an IPA brewery. <laughs> Sometimes habits tend to <laughs> tend to bleed into your other uh, recipes
0: and processes. Uh, uh, for sure for sure. Um, then let's talk a little bit about you know uh, fermentation on on yeah. You know, and again, we'll just use um, you know, Vonnie Pilsner as kind of the you know, the framework to talk about it. And and later on, I will love to talk to you about some of these variations, especially Italian pills or French style pills or, or whatnot. But when it comes to, you know, fermentation, um, you know, obviously you mentioned yeast is a you know key differentiator and then of course process through that cellaring. Talk to me a little bit about what your fermentation process looks like and some of the, the choices you've made around that.
1: Oh man, that's probably the, uh, the most, um, Complicated in-depth uh, changes that we've made. I think we've gone through about eight different strains on pills at this point, uh, which, is pretty, wow. which is pretty funny because they're all they all created you know drastically different beers in our eyes, but uh, I don't think the consumer necessarily uh, you know picked all that out. Um, you know, some of them we tried uh, you know uh, more production-friendly strains. Uh, some I thought made made the best beer, but were we're not very production friendly, whether that's for you know uh, harvest or timing or, or clarity. Um, we just made a change uh, about three batches ago and switched to the um, you know thirty four seventy the the fun lager, um, which is definitely the most production friendly strain that um, that we use, and uh, you know wh- why most uh, lager producers around the world uh, tend to default to that um some of the other ones we used uh were american lager um, thought thought that was absolutely fantastic but not very production friendly um, attenuation was a little bit rough on it hard to get it to um to drop the way 3470 does yeah we really uh de- default to you know knocking out around 52 53 um, pinch at 1.5 uh, million per milliliter plato um, do a, a five degree temp rise 85% of the way through, through attenuation, um, pretty basic, keep it simple.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then end of fermentation, is there any, uh, you know, are you spunding tanks, um, you know, how do you, uh, kind of move past that fermentation, um, and then into the lagering phase?
1: Yeah. It's one of the, uh, the most interesting thing about running through eight different, um, Logger strains before we landed where we were was just how they, um, uh, how they responded to spooning. I mean, some just viability would be, would be very poor afterwards. And some, it seemed, uh, the additional pressure just had no effect at all. Um, yeah. So right now, 3470 obviously responds, uh, very well to uh, a little pressure at the end. So yeah, we are, we are spooning right now. Yeah. We'll attempt to, uh, Yep, capture CO2 through spooning, go through a um a VDK rest. Um once VDK is cleaned up, we uh we do crash the tank all at once. I know people do uh step crashing, but um yeah, bring it down to thirty-two, uh sits there for uh, about three weeks. Um uh we bring the bring the tank up um to higher pressure. Same tank. Yep, same tank. Uh, you know, just do do okay. drops, do drops on the tank. Um, Don't be it Yeah. Out of it. Uh, continue to build pressure and pick up uh, pick up in a little additional CO two before we um, before we transfer the beer and then uh, push it over. The beer is bright and goes to package.
0: Three week lagering time. You know, is that a more of a production concern or uh, you know, in all single tanks? It, it's just interesting to me to talk to because I mean, the, certainly lager brewers have very different and also very firmly held beliefs around these kinds of things um you know
1: yeah i'm sure there's several people uh right now laughing at uh, what we do uh yeah it it works for us part of it is um yeah part part of it's the uh, tank design or seller um you know i think everybody's got a little bit different setup and you have to adjust to what you have but yeah, sorry. So the, sure, the, the sure. Th- th- uh, th- three weeks is not uh, brew day to package. Uh, that that's post fermentation lagering. So. That's in the lagering. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's around uh, five to six week beer.
0: Sure, sure. Let's talk a little bit about um, you know some of these other variations on pilsner. Um, obviously, Italian pilsner has become a thing and and also inspired the ire from some brewers who still don't believe that it's a real thing. Um, and I love that this year, uh, you know, for example, you all sent us cans of, uh, Pierre Lachette, the French style Pilsner. And, uh, you know, and we've seen, um, you know, a few other varieties, um, uh, you know, notches, uh, we've got a Bruce perspective from Chris Loring on brewing their Alsatian Pilsner in, in the, in our upcoming issue. Um, you know, and so, we are seeing some more of these quote unquote variations on Pilsner based on other European traditions. I, I sense that there is as much of a craft beer marketing piece to this for American craft drinkers is as, as there is, um, any real tie to uh, history or tradition in some of these places that are included in these names. Um, you know, but that, I don't have a problem with that. I think, you know, what sells beer is useful for this. For you all, in, in thinking about coming, you know, an Italian pilsner or French pilsner, um, you know, where do you, uh, how are you defining those kinds of things and how are you, what kind of frameworks are you setting around them in order to develop beers um, that fit in that kind of, you know, evolving category?
1: Yeah, uh, we're not, uh, <laughs> we're just trying to have fun and, um, you know, give people a, a general idea of what they're gonna have out of the out of the can. Um, you know, I, I, will say French style Pilsner is, is definitely tongue in cheek. Uh, we're not trying to create a new style or anything. It's just a, just a fun play on, um, uh, you know, a dry hopped, uh, dry hop pills. Um, I, I do want to give a little shout out to Pierre Lachot, the, uh, um, our lead brewer at the Glendevere location. Pierre was his, uh, his cat and his cat passed away last week. So, um, have a, have a Pierre Lachot in his, in his honor.
0: We'll pour one out. Yeah. When you think about something like French pills, I mean, what, or, you know, you say it's tongue in cheek, but what, is, what does the recipe look like for that? And how, you know, what would define it as uh, something like that for you all? Yeah. So
1: obviously Italian pills has been around, uh, you know, well over a decade. I think a you know, firesome locker really, um, really brought it to light and started inspiring people to, um, you know, do, do new takes on, uh, on pills um you know like a lot of breweries I think we uh, were inspired by Italian ingredients or at least uh, I guess Adriatic uh, ingredients so we used the uh, Wirman uh, pills um uh, kind of played off of that and used a, a few different um, uh, European uh, noble for in that beer and then with French pills, um, really just wanted to switch over raw materials to a you know an all French uh recipe so there's um you know it gets a little dry hop of Barber rouge a really um, kind of cherry forward berry like more sweet estery hop character um yeah i don't know maybe we'll end up doing a uh, uh english pills or something although if it, if english ipas are any indication that one might not sell that well
0: it's an interesting one when uh and we see this happening a lot like brewers will define a beer by the country of origin for of its ingredients, you know, and there are lots of different ways to kind of classify and build connections to style. You know, you could do it based on taste. You know, you can do it. You know, purely hedonically in that kind of you know way. You could, um, you know, but but more often than not, we do see this. Like this is my German pills because it's made with German hops and German malt and. It may not exactly taste like, you know, when the expectation is around a German malt, but, you know, or around a German pilsner, but because it's made that way with those ingredients and the same kind of thing with their check pills, if it was check ingredients and it's done this way, then it's this, um, you know, and that I think that's just an interesting kind of conceptual you know, philosophical framework to look at this by, um, you know, is a beer that style because of where the ingredients came for from, uh, or, you know, is it that beer because it tastes like other beers from that place? I don't think there's one answer to this, you know, but it seems like you all are, are you know, in that kind of ingredient source camp. Yeah, maybe, maybe
1: sometimes. Uh <laughs> You know, I think we did that with with French pills, but maybe just because we didn't have a, a better name for it or uh, didn't want to, you know, uh, take ourselves too seriously on it. Um, you know, I, I think history kind of dictates that. Uh, like you said, Czech pills, I think is a very uh, particular style. Um, you know, it has a, a what do I want to say, a very, a very narrow target. Right. But then you create something new and it's a very broad target
0: and you can have fun with it. Um, let's talk a little bit about Dark Lager, you know, because that's one uh, in particular that, uh, you know, I've had from you recently that was a, a standout, the, you know, uh, uh, Bohemian Dark Lager. Um, you know, as you kind of search for inspiration, uh, you know, around that one, um, where'd you find it? And uh, talk to me about some of the steps of of dialing that beer in.
1: Yeah, I'll give, uh, I'll give credit to uh, Kevin at Wayfinder. I think he was... Uh, uh, Kevin at Wayfinder and Natalie at uh, Brayside Brewing were kind of the two people that really started making that beer around Portland. Um, you know, making it very well. Uh, Jeff Allworth is a, a huge fan of, um, of uh, Czech style uh, beers in general, specifically dark lagers. And um, I remember hitting him up and going over to Wayfinder and having that beer and, um, you know, kind of hearing his feedback on it. And he was really excited and I think that just made made everybody in town want to really uh, take a crack at it. Um, you know, we were definitely not the even one of the first five people in Portland to, um, you know, to make that. I don't want to say little known style, but not a lot of people were making, um, you know, check dark loggers even even a few years ago.
0: The style has exploded, and uh, it was remarkable yeah, to us to see how many Czech style dark loggers we received um, to review for for this logger issue. It's in a year-over-year year thing. Like the number of check dark loggers went from like two last year to at least a dozen this year. Um, you know, and it's funny to watch that kind of arc of acceleration as brewers latch onto something that the, they find compelling.
1: Yeah, I'm curious. Did you did you specifically list uh, check dark lager as a style within that, or did that just happen organically?
0: It, we try not to. You know, we did say dark loggers, but uh, you know the you. Over the last three or four years, watching the kind of shift from things like Schwarzbier, you know, and Dunkel toward you know stuff like Czech Dark Lager, it's been yeah. I mean, it's quantifiable in the way that brewers are kind of are making some of those shifts, and that uh, certain styles like Czech Dark Lager become more interesting and compelling to brewers. Maybe it's just a little bit of the, we've done this other one before and our customers wanted something new. And so here we are, you know, playing in this new area, which, you know, is totally normal. That's what American craft beer consumers look like. And it kind of fits what brewers like to do, which is make some things and push themselves and, and, uh, you know, and solve new problems. Um, you know, yeah, uh, I think that's a, yeah, I think that's a
1: testament to, um, you know, brewers being able to, to dictate the market, market sometimes, um, you know, not, not always able to, uh, get people to drink everything, but if, you know, they won't definitely won't drink it if you don't put it in front of them.
0: Yeah. You know, and dictate makes it sound so calculated. I, I think more of it is brewers get excited about making something. And if you get really passionate and excited about something, you tend to make it, pretty well, or if you apply yourself and keep working at it, you get better at it. And when you make something, especially if it's something that's a little different than the thing that people have had before, you know, American craft beer drinkers are in it for that exploration element. You know, it's a different mindset from European beer drinkers who tend to be more focused on, hey, this is my favorite beer and I want to keep drinking it over and over again. You know, American craft beer drinkers love to try new things all the time. And so it's one of those culturally embedded approaches that they have. And so if you can create, you know, bring this thing that they haven't necessarily had before, but that tastes really good right now for some reason or another, um, then it's a fun way to both make the beer relevant, but also give people a new experience. And, you know, from that brewer's perspective, do something, you know, that challenges you all to, you know, to try something and to dial something new in like that.
1: Yeah. It makes the job a lot more fun.
0: Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about how, you know, some of the steps of development in that. You know, you mentioned it was uh, one of your Brewers beers, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh J- Jason Hansen our um our lead brewer at the Cloverville location where a lot of our uh seasonal lagers come out of. Yeah, he really wanted to brew one. Um he's a big fan of dark beers in general, particularly lagers and um yeah, took a crack at it. Um you know, used uh, i I don't have the recipe in front of me sorry can't uh, list off all the ingredients but um yeah really built in a a couple of um you know uh, medium length decoctions um to get the beer to finish a little bit more fuller bodied with a little more um, you know a touch of like ester profile which usually seems very off in lagers and people do everything to to keep that out but um i think it works really well in these styles and, and differentiates them quite a bit from um, any type of dark German lager, like you had mentioned, uh, you know, a Schwarzbier variants or, um, or like Dunkel. Um, yeah, moderately hopped. Um, I believe we used a, um, uh, uh, Czech lager strain on it and, uh, yeah, lots of notes of like chocolate and, um, you know, dark, like kind of cherry cordial. Um, yeah, r- really full bodied and, yeah, I think it was a nice crack. We've only brewed it one time. So talking about dialing it in, <laughs> you know, I think we could, could probably still do a little bit better on batch two. And, uh, you know, might be a while till that one comes out, but we'll
0: certainly uh, keep chugging away at it fair enough fair enough let's um let's switch uh, gears and talk about um uh, you know something that's uh you know closer to your heart i shouldn't say closer because all of these beers matter to you. um but let's talk about IPA and uh let's specifically talk about west coast IPA even though west coast IPA is dead um you know and we, and we all know that no one buys those well i shouldn't say that because people still buy tons and tons of, of west coast ipas uh nonetheless let's talk about that because again you you don't just want to meddle uh, with it before we do the founders launched ss Brewtech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design performance and quality to the very highest standards of the industry with a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science mechanical engineering Industrial Design, Supply Chain, and Manufacturing, SS Brutech, as The people and the skill sets you want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. Head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. Also, when it comes to brewing, nobody has your back like Clarion because their food grade lubricants are formulated to help make your brewing system 100% food safe. That means when you switch to Clarion, you can put the costly potential of contamination and recall out of your mind. All you need to worry about is brewing great beer. And since you already do that, well, it's more like focusing on business as usual. Go to clarionlubricants.com to learn more. So IPA, you know, again for uh, for Von Ebert that and for Portland in general, this um, you know, this broader idea of Pacific Northwest West Coast IPA. Um, is a defining factor that people expect from you and they expect really good ones, you know, coming out of uh, especially that Pearl Street location, given its past history with great IPAs also. Um, so talk to me about walking into, you know, that kind of um, expectation and um, and putting your own stamp on, um, you know, compelling West Coast IPAs.
1: Yeah, I think like with our entire program, I think it just took a while for people to, um
0: you know get, get uh,
1: familiar with our brands um you know get adjusted to uh you know different takes on on different styles um you know our best-selling beer right now is volatile substance um just really simple um, you know straightforward west coast ipa with mosaic and simco uh that beer honestly did not sell very well for about a year uh, i think that was number number five or six uh in our um, uh, sales numbers and today it's it's number one by far um yeah i think it just takes a while to build a brand and get people to realize you know what you're what you're concentrating on you can tell them but until they until they come in and try the beers um you know th- doesn't always go the way you want it
0: to it's a funny one you know and, uh, and portland beer drinkers are stubborn like that you know Again, we had the same conversation with, with Hunsacker and he was saying, you know, even when he came into Fatheads then, people didn't want to try you know, they didn't want to try Fatheads beers in Portland. And it took them years for Portlanders to really come around and even say, Hey, I wanna even drink those beers. Um, you know, that there's a there's a real, you know, kind of I've got my you know, the folks that I want to drink them from. And so breaking into that becomes, uh, you know, a a crazy challenge. Um, you know, but then again, like if you gain respect for what it is, the people tend to come because, uh, you know, they, they want to try these things that other people are talking about how, you know, talk to me about how you went about making beers that were going to change people's minds in that.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think, uh, really pushing to have a, a diverse tap list have, um, you know, not just a, you know, a West coast IPA on tap, but have three different ones with completely different descriptions. Um, you know, I, I, I think we're beyond the point where people just think, oh, I like West coast IPA or I like hazy IPA. I mean, people come in and say, do you have a, you know, a, a really, um, you know, a dank West coast IPA. Do you have a really fruit forward, uh you know, West Coast IPA. I feel like having uh, multiples of those on tap uh, and giving people, you know, a breakdown even within that style is really the way to, um, you know, build a uh, build a crowd and have, um, you know, have give people the options, I suppose.
0: That's, I, I love that idea. And I think you're right. You can't really talk about West Coast IPA or even Hazy IPA as one thing because within any of those, you know, whether it's Hazy or a West Coast IPA, even the expression of something like Nelson Sauvin is going to be incredibly different than something like Mosaic, which is still different than something like, you know, Citra and how you choose to kind of, you know, position that becomes, a, you know, comp- can express itself completely differently, you know, within a beer. And in fact, there may be some more similarities between say like a Nelson Sauvin Hazy IPA and, uh, you know, certain dry West Coast IPAs. They may be more in common than that Nelson Sov and Hazy IPA with other Hazy IPAs, uh, you know, in terms of who would like to drink that kind of beer. Um, but talk to me about how you, um, you know, build these ideas of, say, dank or fruity in West Coast IPAs. I mean, I imagine this is all coming, you know, generally coming down to hops choice and that there's still some kind of, you know, malt based consistency through these. Um, correct me if i'm wrong but w- you know what does that kind of design process look like for some of these like sub varietals uh, you know within a style like west Coast ipa
1: yeah i think t- two things are really important one uh just recipe design it's always uh we always aim for a, a top-down approach we write that concept and that description first without writing you know any raw materials below it uh you know once that concept is really uh, you know, dialed in and we kind of have that, um, that picture of the, what the beer is going to taste like in our brain. Then we start working on the, uh, on the raw materials after that. Um, the second part of it is not just plugging in, uh, you know, oh, I want this uh, dank and Southern Hemisphere berry character, not just plugging Nelson into that, but getting to know your particular lot of Nelson, your particular lot of Mosaic and knowing how those fit within the concepts that you're writing. How do you do that? Well, one, uh, having descriptions, uh, description targets for all your raw materials. So what do we want out of our mosaic? Um, do we want berry? Do we want dank? Do we want bubblegum? Do we want you know a little bit of a uh, pine mixed in? Um, and then understanding once you get those lots, how close they are to your target. And do we need to, uh, make adjustments, uh, do we need to blend in, you know, some spot purchase lot, do we need to adjust how we're using them or what amounts, um, so having those targets and then doing the trial and error to, uh, get even closer to the targets than your raw materials are.
0: How often do you have to, you know, think about those corrections and, and in a day-to-day in the brew house, what does that look like, you know, because I mean, you know, are you making those decisions every time somebody opens a bag of hops? Are you, you know, checking out the most recent lot and then measuring it against those sensory expectations and then thinking more broadly about how everything that might use this might need a little bit of shift or the addition of something else to it? Like how how frequently, you know, does that play into your decision making?
1: Well, I mean, rubbing, you know, rubbing a lot uh, during selection, I think you can, you know, at least set yourself in the right direction and, and get an idea of how how uh, close or far away you're going to be. But you, you don't really know until you actually get it into the beer and do, you know, do sensory on the final product. So really just tracking that, being organized about it, uh, making adjustments and then, um, you know, tweaking as you go along, you can definitely... Uh, you know, take take your notes and uh, adjustments from one beer, and you know, be able to uh, incorporate those changes into something else to get you, you know, closer on the first shot.
0: How do you all do that kind of like uh, sensory evaluation? You know, certainly if you're a large brewery, you know, like a you know New Belgium or or whatnot. Uh, or sierra nevada like you've got giant trained teams of tasters and they're tasting every batch sometimes at multiple you know points around there they're doing it all blind they have their own lab testing they've got rooms and they have little sliding you know doors and um you know everyone goes through that you know they've they've Every taster gets profiled for, you know, blindness around certain compounds so they know who can taste certain things the best, you know, but for a smaller brewery, even a smaller brewery doing production, like that level of granularity is is really hard to achieve, Um, but making those decisions in a sensory, you know, kind of way is also super important for you guys on a generally smaller scale than that, you know, what does that look like and how do you make some of these sensory decisions about, you know, these things after abuse uh, are brewed.
1: Yeah. So we are nowhere near uh, new Belgium or, you know, I mean, you nailed it on the head. We're, we're nowhere near, uh, you know, having the capabilities of, of doing any type of program like that. So I think one, you have to uh, acknowledge your own shortcomings, know that, you know, we don't have the sample size that we need to really, um, you know, have a, uh, a statistically relevant uh, sample size. Sure. Um, so, uh, acknowledging that for one, uh, being really diligent about not letting these things slip by for, you know, two weeks without doing them, make sure you're, uh, at least tasting through everything every day, taking notes. Um, and then the other big thing, uh, relying on other people around town. I mean, I got a um, you know, I think we have a, a pretty good support system in Portland where we can reach out to other brewers and say, Hey man, you know, uh, you know, we've we've been tasting through this beer the last few weeks, and uh, just want to get your your opinion on it. If you've got any feedback, let us know. Um, I I think that's a huge tool. We we love doing that, and it's always uh, um, borne a lot of fruit for us.
0: When you guys taste, you know, in, internally, you know, say before you decide to, you know, push something out into, you know, and put it on sale you know, are you doing this in an organized way or do you just, is it just brewers taking, you know, sitting around and pulling tank samples and, you know, talking about it and, and uh, you know, and seeing what they see, you know, what what does that look like specifically? Yeah.
1: Day to day, it's pretty informal. Um, You know, just be everybody on staff kind of talking through it. Um, You know, I try and organize those thoughts and, uh, you know, take action on them. And then once a month we do sit down for a, a formal panel, you know, it changes, it goes back and forth between breweries, uh, you know, we'll have a blending session with mixed culture beer, uh, you know, we'll have uh, blind tastings, uh, Taste some. Um, you know, product, uh, our product that we bought out market, um, you know, uh, taste from the library, 30, 60, 90 days. Um, yeah, it, it goes back and forth with only six people on staff. It's kind of hard to, you know, wrangle everybody all at once. So it's more about just sure. uh, plugging away and doing as, as um, good of a job as we can throughout the week.
0: I love that idea though, that you even go out and, and, you know, buy the product from a retailer and then taste that just to kind of see how those beers are holding up in the environment that your consumers are tasting it to, you know, which is not just off of a tightly controlled tap wall, um, you know, in the brewery, uh, served in the best possible way and the freshest possible way.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, even if we, uh, beat our beer up as much as we can uh purposely like in a library setting you know i uh, i guarantee somebody out there is mistreating it even even more
0: sure sure let's get back to that um that IPA subject and and talking about uh you know how you specifically build some of these kind of subgenres of IPA you know what 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 a, a fruity West Coast IPA look to you know like for you, and you know, how would you go about building that variety of West Coast IPA?
1: Yeah, I'll go back to um, you know, well, I think there's a few things. Uh, I'll go back to raw materials first. Um, you know, I think there's uh, well, uh, the same lots may not be the same for everybody. I think, um, you know, we can sort of look to what we selected in the past year, um, know that our you know, Azaka is a little bit more fruit forward this year. Mosaic is a little bit more fruit forward. Um, you know, the uh, the Nelson that we spot purchased isn't quite as uh, you know uh, intense and OG as it normally is. It kind of has this nice like um, you know Southern Hemisphere berry character. You know, I'd go through and kind of just make after writing the uh, the concept, just make a list of um, you know IP or um, uh, hops that could fit into that description. Um, And then also there's obviously uh, process uh, variations, uh, bump the tampon fermentation a little bit, get it to finish a little bit more full-bodied, just kind of go through that Rolodex of, um, you know, different different techniques and processes and raw materials that that fit that concept.
0: Yeah. Uh, Are there some that you find more compelling than others? You know, I'm just... uh yeah, if you, So you, you write it out, which I love that idea of creating, you know, the, the, the idea for something, almost a brief, and then working toward the brief, you know, with your recipe development um, and thinking about the palette of ingredients that you have to use, you know, towards that. Um, are there some combinations that you find yourself going back to or, you know, even some of those interesting combinations that uh, may be atypical, um, but that might deliver fun and interesting results for you?
1: yeah yeah i think uh <laughs> i think nothing noble is probably a, a great example of that um you know that that description was really um you know berry melon southern hemisphere in a uh, slightly larger uh, more um, alcohol prevalent ipa than we normally make but still within the west coast uh, family in a really really simple grain bill um nice like clean dry uh yeah, that, that ended up being um Idaho seven, Nelson, and Mosaic, which was sort of a, a very odd combination. And I think I think those three hops together would normally not work very well, but the ones we had just, just tended to um kind of play off one another a little bit a little bit better than we expected.
0: That's really interesting. Um if for the idea of dank, you know, how do you all capture that dank idea? You know, in a West coast IPA. And, uh, I mean, Portland in general has a reputation for dank, <laughs> dank West coast IPA. Yeah, d- dank, is, to... dank
1: is such a weird word.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, but, but how do you capture that, you know, in the, in, uh, in a West coast IPA?
1: Yeah. I mean, some, some people might disagree with me, but I think there's dank kind of in captures a, a few other things, you know, I mean, it could be, uh, you know, uh, cannabis, petroleum, uh, piney resin, some combination of, of, uh, you know, I guess, uh, um, bowl resin, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can cut, you can, you can cut that part out if you want to.
0: Um, yeah, I, it's totally legal in my state and I know it is I in think, yours yeah, too. Yeah, so uh, yeah, we're yeah, going to roll with that. Okay, great.
1: Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of products out there that are helping bring that to the forefront uh i think cryo you know lupulin powder t90 or t45 um you know that family of like mosaic i think really brings that that forward um yeah and then um you know malt bill trying to get things to not interfere with uh interfere with that um you know cutting out a lot of um you know crystal malt i think people are uh, Brewers in general across the country have really dialed back on that. But I think it, it brings forward those characters in a lot more more
0: pungent way. Uh, so you're saying that the caramel malt brings forward the dank character? Do no, no, the opposite. Know, or you're saying that Sorry, the opposite. It, opposite. That. So cut, cutting it out yeah, yeah. actually helps bring some of that dank forward by cutting some of that sweetness. That That makes sense. Um, and yet, you know, now we're also seeing brewers, you know, find a nostalgic place for for caramel malts again too. It's funny how cyclical all of these things, you know, ultimately become. Um, you know, when when it comes to your West Coast IPAs, are there any other sub uh other subgenres that you find consumers asking for or uh, you know, pieces that you need to to fill in? You know, you mentioned fruity and dank. Are there other uh you know, I'm curious just how much more specific that gets.
1: Yeah, for better or worse, I think ABV plays a, a huge role in that. Um, you know, I mean, and and just e- even within, uh, you know, very particular, like American IPA or West Coast IPA, I feel like, you know, there's a subset that really wants, oh, I'm looking for like a low 6%, uh, you know, easy drinking, um, you know, American IPA versus, a, you know, I don't I don't drink anything below 7%. You know, and then I, I think that's also broken down within pale ales and with Imperial IPAs and. Um, you know, that, that's a big one we see. So we try and have a board that has a, you know, a broad range,
0: um, you know, of ABVs. Where do those lines line up? You know, that, that drinker, you know, who wants the lower ABV beer, where does that tend to be versus that, you know, the, the guy that might only drink double IPAs and it may not be a guy, maybe a, you know, a woman as well, that, that consumer that only drinks, you know, 8% plus, uh. Punch you in the face, hoppy beers. You mean where is that that line of uh alcohol? Are there are there some sweet spots for these? You know, like how oh, yeah, you know, is that pale ale drinker that really wants a five percent hoppy beer, you know, how how many of those folks are there compared to that person whose line goes up to six and a half, you know, versus that consumer that wants something seven and a half, eight plus, you know? I'm I'm curious where the typical demand lands for those.
1: Yeah, I think that, that um, I mean, this is from my perspective, I, I haven't done a poll on this or asked anybody, but uh, yeah, I think that like high high 6% uh, range is sort of where most people fall. Um, I think that, you know, there's something scary about something that goes over 7%, uh, but I feel like, um, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to um, create a high quality, uh, high 6% know american ipa without having to uh you know
0: reinvent the wheel it's been fascinating to watch it over the past year too because the last year of of covid restrictions have completely thrown all of these assumptions out the window since draft beer you know basically disappeared and people started buying you know packaged beer and uh of course we saw imperial strength beers just shoot up in popularity because people were shopping less and wanting to get more quote unquote bang for their buck. Um so everything got weird. And we'll I think we'll watch this year as people get out more and get back into drinking establishments. We'll watch things, you know, become normal again. Um from your perspective though, even those ABV levels impact the way that hops express and the way that uh you know you kind of construct these flavors. Talk to me a little bit about the difference between you know, building say a uh, you know like five and a half to six and a half percent uh, IPA versus building a seven and a half to eight and a half percent uh, you know double IPA.
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple of different things.
0: And with uh, you know
1: lower alcohol uh, IPAs and you know higher higher alcohol and, uh, pale ales, uh, it's a lot easier to pick up more like uh, you know green and vegetal character with overhopping it. So obviously dialing back hops and um, adjusting the amount of hop product uh, or sorry the uh, ratio of hop products that you're using so you know with a um, lower alcohol beer we tend to uh, increase the amount of um, you know cryo and extracts that we're using um, to sort of dial back that uh, that vegetal matter um, with uh, you know anything over seven percent i feel like it can handle quite a bit more you know, just take everything to the next level and, uh, you know, doing a, you know, five pound a barrel dry hop on a seven and a half percent IPA is a lot more more forgiving than, you know, pushing that much hop matter at a five at and a half percent beer.
0: Sure. There's enough body and sweetness and, and bitterness and all the other characters that will help cover up some of that, uh, you know, the vegetal character that will get into it just because of, of that kind of volume.
1: Yeah, yeah. And just you know solubility and um, you know in ethanol versus in water, you know it extracts a lot of different character.
0: Oh, you're saying so that um, you know that additional alcohol will pull more of the kind of more flavorful elements out of the hops themselves, just because it's higher ABV. Yep. Cool how does uh you know this this west coast uh, ipa program um kind of jive with um you know your hazy approach also you know it's hard to not make a, a hazy ipa these days and generally even in portland you know there's there's um as they are still, you know, there's a significant demand for this kind of, you know, you know hazy IPA approach. Um, we're watching hazy IPA kind of move in a whole lot of different directions, you know, between different brewers and different locations and whatnot, everything from the kind of West Coast hazy IPAs, uh, uh, which are a little more dry and a little more bitter, you know, from folks like Cellar Maker, you know, to, um, uh, you know, fully super hyper sweet, you um, you know, and, uh, uh, please, the fan kind of approaches, uh, in some of the spots in the Northeast, you know, for you all and that kind of, you know, local Portland market, um, you know, what is, uh, what do people want from hazy IPA from you and how do you think about that, uh, how those hazy IPAs fit into your overall program?
1: Yeah. I mean, we take them, you know, just as seriously as, uh, any of our other IPAs, um, I will admit, I kind of passed the, the Hazy IPA uh, program off to our lead brewer at, um, at the Pearl District location, Eric uh, Ebel. Uh, he used to be uh, brewmaster at Laurelwood Brewing, and uh, he's really talented, making a lot of great 80s, Hazy IPAs. Um, uh, yeah, he's done a great job, really streamlined it. Um, I think we overcomplicated everything at first, and we're offering way too many options, kind of chasing our tails jumping around on yeast strain, um, trying to add fruit to a bunch of them. And uh, I I think the big improvement came when he just kind of dialed everything back and said, listen, let's just make a couple of these. Let's focus on them. Let's, um, you know, uh, uh, select certain hops just for these beers, Um, you know, dial in the concept and, uh, you know, have all the raw materials ready to go for them.
0: So where did you end up when you simplified Yeah, what is uh, what do those core hazy IPAs then look like for Von Ebert?
1: Yeah, really, we just have two now. Um, We have a couple of other kind of uh, rotating beers or seasonals, but Sector Seven was our first hazy IPA. Um, You know, I I wrote the original recipe for that. Uh, Eric has uh, taken it in a much better direction. Uh, That's a seven percent, citra heavy little bit of Idaho seven hot and cold side. And we just um, uh, started sprinkling some Sultana in there, which I think was a really nice addition. Um, give it a little bit more diversified fruit character, and, you know, a little bit of that like uh, pineapple to kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, complement the, the yeast esters. Um, and then the other one is a six-ish uh, uh, percent um, hazy pale ale called Haze Hop. Um, also a lot of Citra and, um, a touch of azaka.
0: How do you think about, you know, bitterness in these beers? You know, it's, you're, you're in an area where people have a, you know, a certain tolerance for bitterness and, you know, enjoy that as a component, maybe more so than they do in some other areas of the country. You know, does that impact the, the way that you, you know, sculpt the bitterness or the level, you know, of intensity of that bitterness in your hazy IPAs?
1: yeah absolutely um you know i think i think more than bitterness for us really the the thing we had to dial in was just uh just finishing gravity tg um you know we were uh, admittedly uh kind of heading too far in either direction and really like kind of looking at where other people's beers were finishing and we we're like oh you know finishing at six plato sounds like a, a great idea and these beers are great and then you know, other people finishing it at three, three and a half. And, you know, those beers tasted great. Um, re- really getting those dialed in was step number one and then finding the bitterness that, uh, that worked with them. Um, you know, we're really targeting, uh, balanced beer. Um, you know, we have pubs and tap rooms and, uh, trying to have most of our beer, you know, sold over our own counters. We want people to be able to come in and have, you know, ha- have a few pints instead of, uh, you know, having a, a big sweet under bittered beer that, you know, they only want ten ounces of. But that's okay too.
0: Where do, so where did you end up at that kind of um, you know, finishing gravity and then and rough IBU kind of territory?
1: Yeah, so we don't do uh just all Whirlpool editions. We do have uh you know a small bitter in charge at the beginning of, of each of these beers. You know, we found that around four Play-Doh, four and a half Play-Doh, five Play-Doh is kind of the highest for some of these. Some of the bigger, like you know, seven or eight percent beers, um, yeah. And then uh, you know, targeting somewhere between forty-five and sixty BUs seems to um, seems to work well for us.
0: Sixty BUs, okay. You're not uh, not afraid to to go there. Well, I will say
1: that's also uh, you know our brew sheets. Uh, that's not
0: that's not tested. So it's calculated, not tested. Sure, yeah, sure. In the in the bigger picture, um, what does the near future look like for Von Ebert, um, you know, in terms of what, you know, plans for this coming year? And then, um, you know, what's the, the big long-term picture goal for Von Ebert overall?
1: Uh, continue to, uh, you know, dial in what we have. And, um, uh, we just opened up a couple new, um, couple new tap rooms in Portland. So now we have four locations. Um, you know, we'd love to, um, Continue to uh, offer a great experience. Um, uh, barrelage is increasing. Uh, we have a couple new hires that are coming on. The last couple of years, done about two thousand barrels a year, and we'd love to uh, bump that up by about fifty percent and start getting beer to, you know, Idaho and uh, Seattle, um, spread the market in Oregon, and uh, get more beers to uh, each corner of the state. Um, yeah, keep doing what we're
0: doing. Well, it's great in this kind of environment that you all are continuing to grow and, uh, you know, and uh, expand. And, um, and that's a really cool thing. But, you know, it's happening on the, the back of, of great beer and uh, beer that people want to drink. And so that's a cool thing. Um, Sam, yeah, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. GD Chillers is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. Crisp Scottish Pale Ale malt is at home in a variety of beer styles. Craft Juice Concentrates from Old Orchard. Are the cost-effective solutions set up your account on marketmybrewery.com today let ss brew tech outfit your brew house and gain peace of mind with clarion lubricants of course if you'd like to support this podcast go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button and if you're a pro brewer consider our new all-access pro subscriptions to combine the magazines along with exclusive online content and more um sam if people want to learn more about von ebert and the beers uh, that you brew where do they find you
1: yeah, vonniebergbrewing. dot uh, We always have an updated tap list on there. Yeah, lots of in- info about each of our locations and hours, and, ours and uh, yeah, look for some uh, some updates to the website coming coming soon.
0: Um, fantastic, and if you want to read more, of course you can read our well, we've written about uh, Alma, their heritage uh, uh, beer in our last know twenty twenty best in beer issue, and I, I know that there's a review of the Bohemian Dark Lager coming up in the the Lager issue that we're working on now. Um, Sam Pecoraro, thanks for uh, for joining me on the podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Jamie. that was fun.
0: Yeah. Cheers. Cheers.